Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you very much. For the folks in Radio Land. Good afternoon, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know. You can find the club online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook and Twitter, and on the club's YouTube channel. I'm Quentin Hardy, the head of editorial at Google Cloud, and your moderator for today's program. I'm now pleased to introduce our guest, Annie Jacobson, former contributing editor at the Los Angeles Times Magazine and author of Surprise, Kill, Vanish, The Secret History of CIA Paramilitary Armies, Operators, and Assassins. It's a heck of a read. Annie Jacobson is a past Pulitzer Prize finalist and investigative journalist whose work revolves around government secrets. She has published books on a range of topics, including what really goes on inside Area 51. Hope we have time for that. Uh, Operation Paperclip, which brought Nazi scientists to America, and government-funded research projects on extrasensory perception and psychokinesis. Her latest book delves into one of the most infamously covert agencies in the country, the Central Intelligence Agency. Surprise, Kill, Vanish, the secret history of CIA paramilitary armies, operators, and assassins, goes inside the Special Activities Division of the CIA, one of the most effective black operations in the world. It also talks a lot about how we got there Mm. through some profiles of some very interesting individuals. Through interviews with 42 men and women who served in covert CIA operations, Ms. Jacobson delivers a startling expose of U.S. covert operations. Today, we'll discuss this controversial and understandably obscure component of American foreign policy, along with the political, ethical, and legal quandaries that have come with it. Please welcome Annie Jacobson. Thank you. Putting it bluntly, this is a book about assassination. And I think it's best to bring it into focus by talking about where we are today and then moving into how we got there. So let's start with perhaps your final anecdote in the book, Stalker Team. What is Stalker Team and what has it done? So Stalker Team is the big reveal at the end. Um, I'm going to preface it by how I – I'm going to preface it by the beginning and get to that, which is that um, in two – you know. There's a lot of mythology around the U.S. government do we, and assassination. Do we assassinate individuals? Is that what targeting killing is? There's a lot of different language used. Um, I wondered about this going back to 2009 when a source was coming to visit me en route to the Middle East, and he had some uh, weapons cases, and I had young boys at the time. He was a licensed weapons instructor, and he said, can I show the boys? Um, he took out one of the guns, a compacted sniper rifle, and set it up in our living room. And you could look across the canyon through the scope, and you could see, we live up in the hills in Los Angeles, and you could see the veins on a leaf. Mm-hmm. So I suddenly knew what my friend was doing, or my colleague, or my source was doing in Afghanistan. He didn't open one case. I asked him later when the boys were away, what's in that case? He opened it up. There was a knife in it, a serrated knife. And I said, what's that for? And he said, sometimes a job requires quiet. So what confused me most was my reaction to that. Why was it okay I could conceive of the source taking someone out, Al-Qaeda Taliban, with a rifle, but not with a knife? Mm -hmm. When I began reporting the book, I went to visit my main source, Billy Waugh. And he's 89 now, Um, On his wall, there were tons of different awards and plaques and commemorative this and that. One of them I keyed in on because it was a knife. And it was an award from the CIA that said, thank you for your service, the assassin. And I asked him about it, and he said, you know I can't talk about that. Classified CIA information. So I spent two years reporting this book, traveling with that source. We went to Vietnam, we went to Cuba, we went to all kinds of places, and he would never talk about it. But over the course of reporting, others did. So I got them to tell me about the stalker team, which is absolutely shocking when you think about it, because it was a Bush era right after 9-11. It was a sanctioned unit that did what is called preemptive neutralization. 
um, and it was a 12-man team. And most shocking, interesting, however you slant, is that it was taking actions at the behest of the president in NATO country, NATO partner countries, not just in Afghanistan. In Iraq. What makes you comfortable using the past tense? <laughs> No, and I, I should not. That is, that's my grammatical error. You're absolutely right, because as I write in the book, we're, what I know now is that we're in 108, the CIA's paramilitary units, ranging from a singleton to a 12-man stalker team, they, they work in 184 countries around the globe. Yes. And when you say work, you don't mean take notes. <laughs> you know, there is some wiggle room there, and I will say it's based on the president's behest. Sure. So when the president says go to work, you know, that's the definition of work. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an interesting concept to explore. And, and, and I think readers get to do that in the book is where do different presidents fall in terms of these assassinations, or if you want to call them direct action, or if you want to call them lethal direct action, or targeted killing, or Eisenhower called it the Health Alteration Committee. Uh, <laughs> President Kennedy... Bad day for euphemisms. Right? Yeah. And so now we can take it back to the beginning yeah. of this, because you profile a number of very interesting individuals, starting with Billy Waugh, who gets going at the close of World War II. And that is a period where essentially we create the modern national security state. Truman signs off on the NSA, and we start talking about these programs, taking certain legacies of World War II and creating this institution that is partly about intelligence gathering and partly about strategic analysis, but then are also about force deployment. And... Mm -hmm both official and non-official ways. And it just kind of grows and inflects and takes on broader and deeper connotations as time passes. And Billy was a part of it for well over 50 years. Yes, he is. I mean, I think at the heart and soul of the debate is what you think of warfare and what you think of killing. And, and when I say you, I mean hopefully the citizenry why I write my books, yes. Educated Citizenry. But the president is part of that, you, when he has to decide. Um, you know, is war a gentleman's game? That's the big question. That's what was asked in World War II. Uh, the book's title, Surprise, Kill, Vanish, was the motto of the OSS Jedbergs. That was the precursor organization to the CIA. And it was very controversial because... Um, gentlemen don't slit throats. That was the exact quote, right? So they didn't want them jumping out of airplanes, running into the night and killing Nazis, but they needed them to. And after the war, you speak of that moment in time, which is really the origin story of all of these black operations, where, you know, the Pentagon and certainly most generals at the Pentagon were saying, no, 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 we now lead the world. You know, we are in the pole position. We are going to stay ahead of Russia and we are going to be gentlemanly yeah. about our warfare. And one of the most shocking things in the book for me was how that led to a tragic botch during the Korean War, that they proceeded with that kind of non-professional sensibility, but still wanting to do these things. Mm -hmm. Talk and, about that a little bit. Well, I mean, the writing was on the wall. But, I mean, I, I had the, I love interviewing men who were there. And I was able to interview General Singlob. I think he was 96 or 7 when I was interviewing him. He was an OSS Jedberg. And he was then put in charge of the air operations in Korea. So we decided to do the same thing. The OSS Jedberg teams parachuted into, you know, occupied France <clears throat> to kill Nazis. And what the CIA teams in Korea, they were called Jack, there with Singlob at the, at the helm, their plan was to parachute into North Korea behind enemy lines. And gather intelligence, and if necessary, kill certain individuals that were on the target list. And they went horribly wrong. Why? Because part and parcel to all this was using indigenous forces. So when the OSS guys jumped out of the airplanes into France, with them were French resistance fighters who were trained in the art of 
guerrilla warfare, but also knew the land, spoke the language, knew the people, knew the geography. And the idea in Korea was, well, we'll just make that work. Well, how could you possibly know the landscape in northern Korea where you've never been? How could you possibly speak Korean on the, you know, the fly? And you don't look Korean, as General Singlog told me. I mean, you just, we don't. And so we hired individuals who were a lot a lot of them were double agents, and I write about some extraordinary tragedies where, um, you know, whole teams get taken out. And the and the estimate is that at least one thousand CIA paramilitary operators were killed, um, never seen again in these operations because these this idea of using indigenous forces went awry. And this went on for years with no apparent reflection that maybe they had this wrong. Like I maybe mean, they should rethink the way this was structured. Exactly. I mean, and I shouldn't be smiling because it's tragic. Yeah. And this is exactly what happened. The same thing happened in Vietnam. And then when we get to the end of the book, I'm writing about that happening in Iraq and Afghanistan. It is a, it is a tension we repeat in yes. Vietnam and in Afghanistan with similar consequences each time. Is it because they feel boxed in? There is no other way to solve this problem? So who do you, and when you say they, do you mean generals at the Pentagon or do you mean the executives at the CIA? I'll take both. Okay. Because they differ, which is what I think is so interesting. I mean, the CIA's paramilitary activities are called the president's third option. So the first option is diplomacy. Second option is war. So when diplomacy fails and war is unwise, the president calls upon the CIA. Tertia optio, the third option. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the CIA's idea is let us go try and take care of the situation before it comes to war when diplomacy isn't working. So y- the generals at the Pentagon are generally opposed to that because it threatens them. And we we have no more clear example of that than than Afghanistan because the CIA, you know, the the Pentagon will tell you that the war in Afghanistan, the recent war started in October of 2002, October 6, 7, right? That's when they say it started. Well, the CIA will tell you and are correct that it started weeks before that when 115 CIA paramilitary officers and their operators and their Delta Force counterparts went in trying to kill people before the Pentagon showed up, Mm -hmm. thinking they could kind of do the job. Mm -hmm. And then the Pentagon comes in with its big footprint. And says, no, 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 this is how it's done. Okay. Stepping back, mm-hmm. what is the difference between assassination and war? I mean, we could talk about that until next year. Yeah. Because this war is... War is assassination at scale on one level. We don't like assassination because it's personalized or because, I mean, these are two forms yeah. of state killing. Yes. Do the people you speak to see them differently? You spoke with a, I mean, putting it plainly, you spoke with a number of assassins mm-hmm. as you know, mm-hmm. Americans serving in action. Did they see themselves as warriors or something apart? Absolutely, they see themselves as warriors because all of them, all the ones that I interviewed, are all military trained. So you generally don't just slide into the CIA from, you know, UVA without getting some training in the military mm-hmm. or wherever it may be, right? So, or you do that and you become a para, you become an operations officer where you lead the team with limited training. But the real um, guys, on the operators, they call themselves knuckle draggers. They call themselves meat eaters, you know. They are trained in what are called tier one uh, military situations, Delta, SEALs, Green Berets. And they see themselves as warriors. And they see themselves as um, doing the job the president wants, always at the president's behest, um, in the name of national security. They, re- they do see it that way. And w- I think the, what was most perspective shifting to me was when I began interviewing a lot of 18, 19, 20-year-old soldiers, missing limbs, suffering from extraordinary PTSD, having a really hard time being back in America after the war, and wondering why they got sent to essentially be cannon fodder. Mm -hmm. And then I'm interviewing the paramilitary operators at the CIA who are in their 40s, 50s, 80s, who say, send me. I know how to do this job. Mm -hmm. And so that adds another 
moral complexity and might be just my own way of not having to deal straight on what I think about assassination. No, I think we were talking about this a little bit before. In some ways, um, the difficulty we have is that war itself has changed and the ability to wage violence has changed. And so the language we're applying to a lot of these situations doesn't really work the way it used to. I mean, There's no win or lose anymore. It's, it's perceived as stopping the enemy, right? And you have that enemy who doesn't have a uniform, has an alias, and is indiscriminate in their killing. And it's very easy to create a big bad enemy. And so we've moved outside the circle of traditional warfare, by all means, into kind of a permanent state of guerrilla warfare, which is what the paramilitary armies are set up to counter because they behave in the same way. They don't wear uniforms. I mean, an interesting detail, the public, you know, always hears, oh, the SEALs killed bin Laden. There's an assassination that a lot of people didn't have any problem with, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Well, they were Navy SEALs in spirit and in training, but that was a CIA paramilitary operation because only the CIA is authorized to kill people outside the war theater, and that was in Pakistan. And how many countries are we in at this point? My understanding is 184. Okay. We're not at war with 184 governments. We're at war with a relatively finite number of movements Mm -hmm. and a few governments that are abetting, but we are not at war with these. So this nature of war and this... uh, name of assassination get very murky very quickly, don't they? Yes, and it falls into the third option. You know, the, the, the pro-paramilitary army, the pro-tertia optio person will say, let's cut off the head of the snake. That's the literal metaphor they use before it becomes war. But the person that has the opposite view would say, well, wait a minute, cutting off the head of the snake is just creating a hydro or a medusa. You know, there's just going to be more snakes and more heads to deal with. And why I enjoy so much writing about national security through the lens of history is because these are complex issues and they require thought and contemplation. I don't think it's beneficial to you know, the United States and us as citizens and people and thinking beings to simply, you know, form opinions without having a longer, a longer degree of knowledge about it. And I think this tension between assassination and war also backs up into the government itself and into yes. the Pentagon where we or the CIA, where you mentioned Guatemala or Iran, for that matter, in the 50s to movements after Korea, where they learned their lessons, got a little targeted. And um, in the case of Iran, installed the Shah, took out Mossadegh, who was democratically elected. In the case of Guatemala, took out the government. And in the case of Guatemala, that led to a civil war lasting lasting 50 years. And we kind of walked away from it. So these targeted strikes... And their consequences aren't very well seen by whoever. Is, is no one in charge at the end of the covert activity? Is that the problem? Nobody sees the consequences? They do sometimes. I'll give you an example that's not in the book. So this is kind of inside baseball here. But um, lots of plans are made to take people out. And again, that's always how it's referred to. And Billy Waugh told me a story about uh, a plan to take out Hugo Chavez. And he showed me the maps and drawings. They were going to Halo in, halo is high altitude, low opening, out of a aircraft. You go down really fast, terminal velocity, uh, really low, so you're not detected by radar. Pull your chute, regroup with your team, and then go do the work. And what Waugh said to me was the president, Bush at the time, rejected it. He said, we're not doing that. And Billy said, well, it's a, his language is a bit more flowery, but he said, it's a good thing we didn't do that because we would now be blamed for Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, unintended consequences are always an issue, and I'm I'm not for or against either situation. But I do I did think that was very interesting to consider that it's a bit of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Either way, so well, maybe we're getting better at it. But I do think there must be a little bit of you can't have transparency in tertia optia because the whole design is to be plausibly denied. I mean. 
nothing you were not supposed to know about Guatemala. I was not supposed to, we were not supposed to know. The reason we know is because it went awry. And so we learn about all of the, um, debacles, if you will. That's why we know about the Bay of Pigs, another CIA paramilitary operation. Um, We don't know about a lot of other things. Are we supposed to? How can we make a decision about what we want to vote for or what we think is right or what we want the Congress to do um, when we don't know? Well, um, you write about the church and pike committees in Mm -hmm. the 70s where much of this was revealed. But we're still doing this. Did we did we have that debate? Was that a missed opportunity? We did. And it was you. I don't know if missed opportunities were, but you could say you could take the position that it was a failure of Congress. And I think I would actually take that position because when I see hypocrisy, I sort of as a reporter, I go like, that's where I want to investigate. And I often see Congress persons that I know are in the intelligence committee and I know have been briefed from the people who are my sources, you know, wait, how can this have happened? And knowing that they know, because that's in the, the result of the church committee and the Pike committee was the, the house and Senate intelligence committees and a requirement to brief certain members of Congress, the gang of eight on all CIA paramilitary activities. They are briefed. And, Congress never outlawed assassination, despite the fact that you'll see anytime this comes up, a drone strike or someone's killed, you'll hear the press go crazy and repeat, you know, executive order one, two, three, three, three prohibits assassination. Well, not really. If you have a memorandum of notification or a presidential finding, it's called written by a CIA lawyer who I interview in the book that says, actually, this isn't assassination. It's targeted killing. It's Mm -hmm. preemptive neutralization. It's executive action. So the nomenclature allows the president to circumvent that prohibition. So do they feel that the public can't handle this? We shouldn't have this debate? We can't stand for this? Is that hypocrisy or is that accurate? I don't, I think my read is that they, is that Congress had to have recognized the need for the third option. Otherwise, they would have, they would have passed a law making it illegal, but they didn't. They left it to the realm of the executive order. They left it to the president to make those decisions, and they have to know that. Which, and it certainly came up again after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So, and this led us into a very strange episode in the 80s that you mm-hmm. largely leave us. You talk about William Buckley, the station chief, and his mm-hmm. sad situation. But um, Iran-Contra, which on the Contra side was funded by the activities of Singlab, mm-hmm. among others. Yes. You know, so they called up these guys. Yes, they did. And brought them in to help arguably illegally fund the activities they wanted to do in Iran. And so they started using cutouts, third ways, workarounds for what Congress told them they could and couldn't do. And, and we saw that repeated after 9-11 with contractors like right. Blackwater, right. where the idea is, well, let's circumvent, cir- let's circumvent the circumvent mm-hmm. by going even, even further away from accountability. How much of this can we privatize? Correct. However, the problem is, and I believe, and I've interviewed a number of those individuals who worked both at the CIA and then went over to Blackwater and advised Prince. And the my understanding of it is that... Eric Prince is the guy who founded Blackwater. Yes. And my understanding is that they privatization is too dangerous because they don't have the Title 50 authority. That's what it's called that right. allows the paramilitary operators to... That's So the SEALs that have to become CIA for the night, the Defense Department works under what's called Title 50, part of the National Security Code, and they have very different rules of engagement than the CIA, who works under Title 50. And you can't give a private con- military contractor Title 50 authority but that can, I know of. They can land, they can make sure the coast is clear, they can shine the light, and then somebody else pulls the trigger. They can and they do, yes. How different is that? Well, I would argue that it's a line that's important because once you put that responsibility over into the private sector, then you have a whole new set of problems because ultimately the individuals who work 
for the CIA are beholden to their code with the CIA and with the military. And I can't imagine what would happen if that was removed. Mm-hmm. Because I do, I do actually believe, with all the problems aside, that much of this is done in good faith. And I don't know that I believe that about the corporate world. Once the motivation is money, only money, set aside all the military-industrial complex issues, which I've written about at length in the Pentagon's brain, the Defense Department making money, different issue. But once the only uh, goal is financial gain, then we have a different set of problems. None of the guys that I know who work for the CIA paramilitary are sitting around fat cats. No. They live in very modest homes with an American flag on the front porch. And Billy Wall eventually goes into any number of countries with satchels full of money for other people. Yes, he does. And today, today is a relatively modest octogenarian somewhere mm-hmm. in Florida, right? And teaching at Fort Bragg, by the way, once a month. Uh, this guy's tough. Military tactics to the young guys coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, but this does lead me to an interesting question from the audience. Um, I'll tweak it a little bit. What's the budget on all this stuff? Does anyone know what all this is costing and how much of the military is? They don't call it a black budget for no reason. I mean, I think that's exact. It's a big black hole. It's a lot of drones. I mean, this isn't just individuals. It's a lot of choppers. I mean, Mm -hmm. at one point you mentioned a diversionary tactic that calls for 15 different airplanes flying at the same time. Yes. To land six people. Yes. With that said, think about this. It's a millifraction of the Pentagon. So after 9-11, when the CIA led the charge into Afghanistan, they went in with, this is a rare number that I happen to know, 115 special activities divisions operators. 115. That's not a lot. They were augmented by 2,000 Pentagon special force, special operation forces partners from Delta, SEALs, Green Berets. So 115 to 2,000, and that's a CIA-led charge. So you can, you know, the the numbers are are very, very different. That's still less than a base in Mississippi that they'd like to close down anyway, but the congressman wants to keep it going. Yes. Yeah. Um, Another question from the audience. Were you shocked at talking to all these assassins? Were you under the impression that the U.S. policy would be more moral or humane? What was it like reporting this? Well, that's why I opened the book with the prologue that I do and the story I told you about my own, you know, reaction to sniper rifle versus knife. I think that is important because I think it's wrong to just assume um, a higher moral ground. You know, I've been invited to Afghanistan and I've turned it down because I always say I'm Jet and Finley's mom, you know. So you can call me an you can call me an armchair reporter or you can call me reasonable, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to Afghanistan and those guys are. So start with that. But the other thing is that I don't you don't meet someone and go, "Hey, how is it?" you know. These are these are relationships that I develop with people over time. I write in the book. I mean, Billy Waugh and I traveled to Vietnam in 2017. He was 87 years old. We went back because he was in charge of the assassination campaign to kill General Jop, the fearless leader of the North Vietnamese army during the Vietnam War 50 years before. Waugh was supposed to kill him and failed. Jop died just a few years ago at the age of 103. We went back to visit Jop's son and sat in Jop's home and spoke with Jop's military commander, who was in charge of killing Billy Waugh. Okay? <laughs> I mean, if this wasn't an incredible moment as a journalist, as a human, as a mother, to sit and watch and observe and hear them discuss tactics from 50 years ago and hear them talk about, you know, unresolved issues, and then bring up the big issue about, you know, who won the war and why. Right. And in that moment, the TV version was they'd all get together as friends and find a chord, but it really wasn't like that. They were both still tough old soldiers. They were. Yes, they were. Right down the line. Um, An audience member asks, and this is a very good question, uh, typically... These things come to light when something goes sideways. Mm -hmm. That's when we find out. So we get a rich legacy of failures. What do you know about the successes? I write about 
some of them in the book, you know, and a lot of them have to do with taking reconnaissance photos. So there was a period of time when Waugh was or was not doing the work and was instead using a camera lens instead of a, of a, of a rifle. And he photographed bin Laden, for example, in the 1990s, back when bin Laden was in Sudan. Um, and ironically, that's one of the few things that B- Billy Waugh talked to me about and said, I wanted to kill him. The agency wouldn't let me because Clinton vetoed it. So uh, he also photographed Carlos the Jackal, who was the most wanted terrorist in the world before bin Laden, along with Imad Mugnia. Um, and that allowed the CIA to work with our French partners to give the French the credit of taking down Carlos the Jackal in Sudan. So there are some success stories where assassination is not necessary, where the person is captured and incarcerated. Um, but you are the, the question is great because we do learn about the, the gross missteps. Right. And we see that in Afghanistan. I mean, Afghanistan is very grim. And I don't, I mean, I think if there's any place where my opinion comes across in the book, it's in Afghanistan because it's just a disastrous situation that, that has been created, um, of the CIA's paramilitary teams working with indigenous force partners because the president always wants an Afghan face. So they don't want, you know, these guys jumping out of helicopters and going into houses and busting down doors with beards and white skin. Um, they want an Afghan partner. So allegedly we're supporting the Afghan partner, but that's, you know, people can see right through that. And because the nature of Afghanistan and its, and its issues, the whole, the whole situation has gone belly up and it's really tragic. And even more tragic is that a lot of the individuals who were training these younger, younger 40 year old paramilitary officers who finish up with SEALs or Deltas and go over to the CIA are being trained by guys who did this work in Vietnam. And are just seeing the movie play again. You're seeing the same story. Right. Yes. Where you train them, but you're not sure that they're not traitors or the quality is substandard. They are not committed to the mission in the same way. They don't see the nation, state, or global terrorist threat threat the way you do. Absolutely. So you're kind of getting a different fighter. Absolutely. Now, to even go back to the question of what is war and what is guerrilla warfare, I read the other day... You know, in in a newspaper that we dropped and fact-checked it, but we dropped, the Pentagon dropped 7,460 bombs on Afghanistan last year. 7,460. Those are not Hellfire missiles you can that see are why targeted. They, you Those can see are, why they call it the forever war. Right? And so people say the paramilitary organizations are terrible. They're ruining Afghanistan. How about those 7,000 bombs? Mm. Right? And just last week, the the administration decided that it would no longer report those numbers. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. It's another aspect of the difficulty we have discussing this as a democracy, fundamentally, because war is assassination at scale. Mm -hmm. And it's somehow better that a cluster bomb be dropped on a village versus a drone strike that kills an individual or kills another 10 individuals. The collateral damage can be five times as much with a bomb, but there doesn't seem to be as much outrage. Yes. Why is that? I mean, I don't know. But if I wrote a book about the Pentagon's bombing campaign in Afghanistan, no one would be here, right? Yeah. But you write a book about the CIA's paramilitary assassinating people. People want to discuss this. So to this reporter, it's a way of trying to take the bird's eye view of all of that and have it become something that we actually think about, we actually discuss, and we participate in. A a democracy at its best leaves the individuals responsible for the actions Mm -hmm. of the state. So if we're going to do this, we should know about it. And where that's concerned, uh, an audience member asks, what do you know about Allende's death in Chile and the CIA or other 
eventful CIA activities? I didn't write a lot. Of, I didn't write about that at all in this book because it's been covered. Um, but it is, you know, that is what we what what you can learn. I think by reading this book is you go, wow, all of these things I know about disparately are all connected to that idea of the third option. Um, the CIA has three branches of its special activities division, which is which is what the paramilitary wing is now called. They have an air branch. They have a, you know, which is drone strikes. They have, and also the U-2 back in the day. Um, and they have a maritime branch, sea operations. And then they have a ground branch, which is what I'm writing a lot about on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, are these missions declassified after some number of years? How did... For example, the yeah. Argo uh, story, the Americans who were lifted out of Iran. How did that come to light? How do some things get surfaced and others don't? Yes, that's a great question, and it's all very mysterious because um, often someone will file a Freedom of Information Act, someone being a citizen or a journalist um, or a lawyer, and the CIA will reveal those documents. I myself have been the recipient of thousands of pages that come to me, and I file FOIAs all the time with, across the government, and a lot of times they come back with the famous word non-responsive, which means <laughs> you can't know, or you get a stack of documents. Um, it's hard to say, but m- what I do know for certain is that built into the National Security Code, when all of this began um, back in the earliest days of the Cold War, was the idea that the president's guerrilla warfare corps, that's what it's called, the CIA's paramilitary army, that was what it was originally called, was designed to be plausibly denied. And so we are we are not supposed to know. It is to remain the hidden hand. And that is always undergirding the narrative that you only know part of the story. And the men and women, I take it, you talk to, uh, how do they feel about that? Do they, do they think the public is better off ignorant or the public should know? That's a, that's a tough question. I mean, because, and, and I have asked that, and I don't know that I get a straight answer. Mm. Because I do think there's a little bit of loyalty there or, you know, um, oath, right? There's a camaraderie in this, in this secret brotherhood, clearly. Yes. They like the idea that they surprise, kill, and vanish. Yes. And the vanish is a big part of it, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I ask a lot of questions, and you do the best that you can as a journalist to piece together the story based on credible information. Um, and, and you know, what was interesting is when Billy Waugh finished reading the book, he said to me, I learned a lot about my agency I didn't know. Wow. That felt good. I was going to ask you, um, what's it like reporting something knowing you're never going to know the whole story? You go in as a journalist yeah. thinking, I'm going to nail this down, but you just can't in this situation. And the people you're talking to also have a lot of training in dissembling and secreting information. What's it like trying to work on something like that? Well, out of the gate, I... We, I knew I didn't know because I'm always dealing with these incredibly secret secrets inside secrets inside secrets. Um, but the best example I can give of that is this. When I was reporting my Area 51 book, I've written five books now on this kind of subject of war, weapons, security, secrets. And on the Area 51 book where the U-2 was developed, the CIA's air branch was working there, the U-2 in the fastest plane in the world at the time, the Mach 3 um, A-12 ox cart, the precursor to the SR-71. One of the pilots named Frank Murray showed me how this works, right? He said, Annie, look at this document. And it was a, it was like a, basically a report card for him from the Pentagon where he was working and he worked for general so-and-so. And it was a checklist of all these great things he did, um, from 1967 to 1968, right? Mm -hmm. And that was his document that he showed everybody. But he was at Area 51 the whole time learning how to fly this biplane. And then flying over North Korea, he took the photographs of the Pueblo incident. I mean, all these incredible missions. But he, for, for, you know, all those decades until the CIA declassified that document in 2007, he was at the Pentagon working for the general. So if you were a reporter and you saw that document, you'd be like, of course this is where he was. This is stamped from the Pentagon, Mm -hmm. only to find out, wait a minute, that's actually not the story. And I work always with that concept in mind that just when I think I know what's going on, I might not know. And I imagine this happened with interviews where you had to tell somebody, I know what you're telling me isn't accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Do they fess up? 
It depends. Yeah. It depends. And I do always try to put myself in the very end of the book so that, A, you can see the human part of all of this, that it is just another human. You know, the reporter, the author that's writing in the third person with this kind of bird's eye view is a person with their own bias, try as we might not to have it. And so is the are the sources. And so those discussions I include at the end of my book or little reveals that usually come out that show that. I mean, Billy Wall and I went to Cuba um, also because he did his final parachute jump uh, there in Cuba at the age of 87 and a half with none other than Che Guevara's son. So in the same way that we went to go visit Jop because the CIA killed Che Guevara. And I write about that in the book. It's known. It's not known. Um, I interview Felix Rodriguez, who was in charge of the team who did that. The Bolivian Rangers pulled the trigger. By the way, if you're a Che Guevara fan, you won't like this chapter because he's really not a very good guy. He's a pretty bad guy. He's a pretty bad guy. And it was interesting meeting his son and being a guest of Ernesto and, mm-hmm. and talking to Ernesto about that. And um, How did he and, feel about his father? Well, don't forget that Cuba is still a communist country, and you cannot have opinions like that. Fair. <laughs> right. So, but I, I put, you know, I, I tell that from the boots on, my boots on the ground type of view, because you can see, and my question on all that was like, is this, is this really a parachute trip? I mean, are we on some kind of mission? Because, you know, that's an infiltration technique. And the other thing that was going on was scuba diving, which is an exfiltration technique. And when he goes home, is he really going to not talk to his friends about what he saw in Cuba? Of course he is. So you kind of wonder where, that's your question of like, where does it end? You know, what's the truth? I don't think boundaries are ever clear Mm -hmm. here. And with that in mind, let's add another layer to this. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we are in 100 plus countries carrying out assassinations in many of them with drones and human teams, Mm -hmm. sometimes with indigenous, sometimes on our own. Uh, This has been in train for decades, but with the growth of global terrorism and non-state actors, it's become much more so. It's likely to become even more so as new sources of funding arise and all sorts of turmoil takes place on the globe. I think people assume this is just a U.S. phenomenon, but this is happening for many, many countries. They're doing the same thing, aren't they? And I don't just mean Russia and China, but our NATO allies, um, supposedly independent or innocuous actors. What is the extent of this? Do these governments bump up against each other in the field in ways they didn't even expect? Ah, I mean, that's interesting. Um, When Billy Waugh and I were in Cuba... Ernesto took us to his father's cigar club, um, where, and, and we were sitting there, you know, I don't smoke cigars, they were smoking cigars, drinking whiskey. On the walls were these famous photographs of Che and, and, um, Castro. And there, you know, we, we went to, Billy Wall and I went to another room and we just started up a conversation with a man who was from an, what used to be an Eastern Bloc country. Let's Mm -hmm. just put it that way. And, I re- Billy Waugh and I were both like, after we left, we're like, that guy was a spy. And he was like, absolutely. Yeah. Right? And he had all these reasons that he was in Cuba and that he was at the cigar club. But I had a feeling he was there watching Wall. And, you know, so to answer your point, yes, they bump into one another. I think they bump into one another all the time. I mean, yeah, anywhere right. I traveled with Billy Waugh, by the way, he got jammed up at customs. And he was just back there with them. And it was like me sitting there like, okay, you know. I mean... A funny detail. We were flying to um, Vietnam, and I said, Billy, do you have any uh, frequent flyer miles? I'm trying to bump us up to first class. It's a long <laughs> flight. He said, oh, my God, I got a million, right? And he gives me the number. He emails me the number. And then he re- and I realize it's under one of his pseudonyms. <laughs> he has hate a it when thousand, that happens. Right? He has a million miles under a pseudonym with a different passport. And, you know. Poor guy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I unforeseen all, consequences. I saw all the passports, you know, and... Uh, they keep sending I, birthday greetings to my cutout. Right? <laughs> I mean, so this is a different world. No, and, it's an entirely different landscape. And in individuals, and also one assumes there is an international business in drones. It's mm-hmm. not just Rockwell and Boeing and a few other manufacturers. There are probably knockoffs from foreign countries. So any country worth its salt 
probably wants this stuff and is con- conducting this kind of thing. Yes. And I mean, the idea of the drone military industrial complex is extraordinary and has serious consequences because that opens up the field to a whole new can of worms, mm. um, which is why a lot of these operators will tell you that what they do on the ground is going back to the idea of warfare and that what they do is actually the gentleman's game because the rules of the game have changed. The game is now there are different rules and they're playing by those different rules and the drone strikes are out of the rules and they're taking it to a whole new level of chess. Mm-hmm. So w- this is not a conversation that we can end here. No, it's a, a conversation we've barely surfaced yes. in any context. Mm-hmm. And that leads me to another uh, audience question regarding um, the relationship between Blackwater and its various forms, it's evolved. And uh, Eric Prince, the former Delta Force. Um, SEAL. SEAL, former SEAL, who started a lot of this privatization and is the brother of our Secretary of Education and a well-connected guy who did something or other in the Seychelles that we can't seem to discern. Um, him in particular, but also this industry. How widespread is it? Does it just deal with Americans? Has it gone overseas? Is it expanding and internationalizing the way most capitalist organizations care to? So the private contractor issue is, I do not address it in the book because it's highly opinion-based, right? So I don't address it from a fact position. But what I will say, um, since you asked the question, is that an overwhelming majority of the CIA paramilitary operators that I interviewed, like as in 99 out of 100, had very unkind things to say about Blackwater and about the whole defense contractor, private industry, you know, that that idea. And they said those guys are dangerous. I mean, that's an exact quote. Because right? they're reckless? Because they're poorly and trained? Because they have language problems? What is the issue? Not having to adhere to Title 50 rules. But there was a deep... Uh, you know, I had a lot of quotes that I thought about using in the book, and I just decided not to open it up because it was opinion-based. I have no documents to support that, and I didn't want to get drawn into that. That's a longer issue, mm-hmm. but that is the position, which I found fascinating, that, you know, when it all comes down to it, the operators I interviewed are very clear that they are following rules and orders. I mean, that's a whole, that's a loaded expression right there, but that the Blackwater guys are dangerous and that Blackwater is a, is a blanket term for any of the defense contractors. Right. Triple canopy, there's a n- number of them. But as a, as a reporter, as a whole, you also know yeah. you're talking to the ones who haven't gone over to the private sector. Yes. There, is a, there are a host of former assassins who have gone over and probably don't have this problem. Yes, and one of the reasons for that is that the CIA has very strict rules with its polygraphs, right? So the guys who I talk to have to be squeaky clean, if you will, Mm -hmm. right? They can't, one of the things they can't do is lie. If they lie, they will be kicked out of the CIA. Oh, that's interesting. And they have, um, so they're, They protect their reputation among themselves, Mm. which is a jealously guarded secret in and of itself. But they feel that they have certain standards that they always adhere to that are lost in the commercialization of it. There was a certain melancholy tone as we got into the modern forever wars Mm -hmm. where I felt some of them thought there used to be more glory in this. Mm. And this has become some really ugly plumbing work now. Absolutely. I mean, that, and that has to do with the indigenous force partners in both Iraq and Iran just doing some really immoral things. And the White House telling everyone to look the other way. And these are documented cases I talk about that we don't have to get into here because they're so upsetting. They're dark. They're very dark. And and it's like, look the other ways, boys, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not what we're here for. And that's yeah. that, that, uh, that. So here you have these guys who are saying, I have to have these standards for myself. I mean, the physical standards are insane. I list them what they, what they have to be capable of doing, you know. Um, and then the issues about their behavior 
in the war theater are also very stringent and they're up against their partners, you know. I mean, just to give you one example, opium use is just so extraordinarily rampant that a lot of times the guys out, the indigenous force partners are so stoned and high on opium when they're out on these kill missions that it's extraordinarily dangerous. Yes. You know, cars are catching on fire. You you said they would purposely take away the pipe two hours before an action. I'm sorry, two hours doesn't make me super comfortable. I might go for six. Right? But, you know, that's... That's, that's the best they can do. the best they can do. And I write a lot about that. Which I is mean, astonishing. Yeah, it really is. And it's very, again, the moral question. It's like, why don't we know that? I mean, um, and, and whenever I hear information like that, by the way, I always run it by my other sources. You know, we didn't even talk about my interviews with Lou Merletti, the 19th director of the Secret Service, who really feels that protecting our president from the, from assassination is the flip side of this coin. Mm-hmm. And he really believes in both sides of the coin. And, and I would run, so he's an objective person that's outside this, but knows a lot of those operators. And I would run the same thing, like, is it really true all those guys over there are stoned or, you know, you know, doing these incredible sex acts that are really immoral. Um, and I'm talking about rape, you know, yes. felony rapes of Basically, one another. our allies are rapists. Yes. And so, and, and all, I never had a single person, that's a hundred out of a hundred, say to me, Annie, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that's true. And I remember wondering when my sources read the book, if they were going to be kind of like shocked by that. They were like, why would we be shocked? Everyone knows that's true. And I'm thinking, well, why doesn't the public know that's true? Mm-hmm. Because that seems to be something to take into consideration if that's the partner you want on a killer, a killer capture mission. What you have put into a yeah. new lens and in a sharp lens is the age-old tension between valor and political expedience. I'm going to quote you on that. Well, right. <laughs> that's it. That's it. But it's that's up close it up. and at a higher level than we normally see because it's a new kind of war. And I think you have that because you see the valor is what the... The men in my book, that's the, that's the podium on which they stand. And political expediency or political action is the podium on which the president stands. Mm-hmm. And the president is in charge of them. So, And you, you wouldn't want it any them. other way. Yeah. But it has, as we used to say in grad school, unfortunate human consequences. Yes. Yes. Um, now, another dimension of this is the Secret Service, because what struck me was how much engaging in this world, embracing this world, the growth of this world, if you will, the covert or guerrilla kind of conflict we've seen since the post-war period and our own engagement in it has brought all this home so that the Secret Service has to protect the president like they're a bunch of Delta Force guys. And this didn't used to be a problem. And are there other ways in which we have brought assassination and covert activity home or into our shores? I think that's a future question. You know, I think we will see that. I think that that is inevitable. I mean, touching upon your idea of like who else is doing this and you just look at the Russians who are kind of leading, always have led in assassination by poison, right? Um, UK. Right. And is that going to come here? I mean, how the president of the United States is protected from assassination is astonishing. I mean, it is its own paramilitary force, as you say, all behind the scenes, all in the shadows, but all trained and acting exactly in the same manner as the CIA's third option guys, but with the exception that they're just playing defense, waiting for an attack. So will that come? I have two lightning round questions from the audience, and I'm sure this one will be easy. What should we do in Afghanistan? (laughs) (laughs) Next one's tougher, so. I mean, I think if you read the last few chapters of my book on Afghanistan, you will be as unable to answer that question as I am. But I think maybe the question is more about hindsight, right? Mm -hmm. And that's dangerous. That's easy. That's the journal, the armchair. Um, But it is, uh, it, the, the, the partners are not real partners. At this point, we seem to be negotiating with the Taliban yeah. in better faith than we are negotiating with our own allies. Yeah. Is that accurate? I mean, what what is happening there and what is happening behind the scenes, I think, are probably two different things. Mm-hmm. But I think that we will always we will always have the third option there, right? Right. 
Okay, the yeah. follow-up. What's going on with Iran? Well, yeah. okay. let me fine-tune that question okay. a little bit. Um, you know, we talk about there, there are fleet movements into the Gulf, and we have the president talking about, well, if I did do 120,000, it would be actually a much bigger number than that. You know. Are some of your friends starting to disappear suddenly and go overseas? Are some of your I mean, sources dropping uh, out of sight? Iran is the great sphinx, right? And I will tell you this, that there's almost, I mean, with the exception of history, there's there's nothing contemporary written about Iran because I could not find it out. And my main source, Billy Waugh, sat on the Iran desk for decades. So that gives you an indication of how impenetrably secret that is. What I did know, uh, I do know about off-the-record um, halo missions into Iran. And they mm-hmm. also are called hey-ho missions. So hey-ho is high-altitude, um, high-opening, high okay? And that's so that you can deposit an operator outside of Iran's border, and they will glide in yeah. v- very, very, very Trip high. 20 miles. Yes. Yeah. And so we've always been there, but that's just an extraordinarily dangerous place to operate. And that's a place where if someone gets if a if a CIA operator gets caught in Iran, you would never hear from them. I mean, a fascinating detail about Billy Waz, he said to me, Annie, if I ever got jammed up, that's always what they say for being arrested, you'd you wouldn't be writing this book because I would have just been reported as having had a heart attack in an airport, you know, in Caracas. Did Meaning, he carry what they used to call an L pill? Not according would to he, him. Would he, would, would he take his own life? Was that what he meant I, by that? I'm going to have to ask him. That's going to be my follow-up question to him from you. I'm going to blame it on you. But I never Thank asked you. that question, and I should have. Yeah. You're absolutely right. But, you know, I think that what he said is that's why I never got caught. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He seemed like he had an incredible capacity for survival. I once asked him, there's two guys in my book, one guy who's on, um, I don't name him. That was on. That was a part of the stalker team, and they're friends. And I said, "If the two of you had to kill each other, who would have won?" <laughs> and he laughed, and he took a. He said, "Give me more details." And I said, "Well, let's say it was a duel at you know twelve o'clock um, in front of your house." And he goes, "Well, that's an easy answer." And I said, "What?" And he said, "I would have killed him first, before we had to show up." <laughs> that time you got an honest answer, <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay. Right. Um, a question from the audience, and thank you for your comment to me. Um, the Vietnam War had Operation Igloo White, electronic, electronic monitoring sensors. Um, do you happen to know the current U.S.-Mexico border is using a similar yeah. tactic? How closely yeah. are we monitoring it? Yeah. Are any of your friends or associates involved yeah. with what we're doing on yeah. our own border? The advances that have been made from Igloo White would blow your mind. It's like the fact that, you know, the technology that's in your or my iPhone at that same time would fill this whole hall, right, just to make it work, and it wouldn't mm-hmm. even have half the capacity or a tenth. Um, that whole program I write about, that sensor technology, was a DARPA program, and um, and the operators, like Billy Wall, had to jump in and put those sensors into the into the Ho Chi Minh Trail. But I write about that at length in the Pentagon's brain. It's a big, long discussion. And absolutely, I mean, not only is it on the border, we essentially, you know, have eyeballs, or we did have eyes all over Iraq, all over Afghanistan. Um, And where that technology is now, what has happened to it, no one will tell me. I mean, and I think the answer is it's in enemy hands. That's my feeling. We never get an advantage for too long in this. And that is the military-industrial complex. Or, as someone at the Pentagon described it to me, he said, Annie, we're often accused here of creating a self-licking ice cream cone. Mm-hmm. Which is a softer, gentler way of saying the military-industrial complex, which is that we're just creating... I mean, that's why I wrote about weapons in the Pentagon's brain, and this is about men, and that was about weapons. But it, it speaks to the same issue, which is, you know, because our... Pentagon science programs look to the wars of 25 years in the future. So they are no longer interested in, you know, finding peace. They're interested in preparing for the next war. Period. Full stop. If I put you in charge of our civics textbooks, (laughs) how would you talk about what we do? Because I think a, a big problem we've identified today is we don't know how to talk about this in a democracy, do we? 
And in countries that aren't democracies, they just don't talk about anything. Mm -hmm. How do we describe how and why this works? And, I mean, it seems as if we must, or do you think we should not? So when you say civics textbooks, I guess you're meaning like grammar school, right? The next generation. How should they know? What should they know about this world and how should it operate in a democracy since it seems to be here to stay? I would say that that, my friend, is the parent's job, right? It has to start with the grownups. I mean, most people here look a bit older like you and me. And we are... We seem to care about history, you know. I mean, I have a young 19-year-old son who came on the trip with me to Vietnam saying, Mom, I want to be a photojournalist and I need to know if I have what it takes, right? So he's a rare example of a uh, someone who really wants to know about history. Um, but I think that, you know, you're talk- in the civics books, you can have history. I mean, they don't teach Vietnam. In- my kids didn't learn about that in grade school. Um, that's, you know, you... No, but we teach the army. We teach war. We don't talk about and teach ongoing secret operations and assassination as a form of acceptable state violence, which is what it's become. Absolutely, we don't. Should and, we? But, but well, I think that I think those are conversations, right? I think they're conversations, not polemics, and that's the problem: mm. is that they people hear their parents just talking about it in terms of polemics. Yes, you know, drone strikes are bad. Drone strikes, you know, or or only Republicans assassinate people, and Democrats never do. Neither kill of those, those terrorists. Right? You know, it goes in both directions. And these are complex issues. So I don't have, I would say, I'm sorry, I don't have that answer yet, but I'm going to keep working at it. Of how do you get that into the, into the discussion in a way that is interesting and thought provoking to people, not dark and. Have you encountered a congressman or woman who wants that, wants this surfaced, wants us talking about this? No, I have not. I really have not. I have encountered journalists who are... I've encountered authors. I've, I've encountered technologists are very interested in this. Oh, no question. Very interested. No question. Um, so I do see a shift there. And I do also see um, the idea that people that are younger are more aware of the world than other generations because of, because of access that they have. But... W- Maybe it will take a while to catch up where information, you know, it's like the printing press years, where it's going to take a while for information to settle down and people to begin to curate for their own selves what's important and what they want to focus on rather than this massive pipeline of stuff coming at them that um, is sensational. And excuse me if this is unfair, but I want to personalize it. You have a 19-year-old son. How would you feel if he joined the Brotherhood? I mean, you know, he, he, he needs to make his own decisions. That's apparent. But I would, I would tell him that his talents as a thinker, as an observer, as a communicator, I mean, um, are better suited in other areas. Because I do think that when you join the agency or when you join the Pentagon, you, by its very nature, whether you're working under Title 50 or Title 10, you start to see the world through a straw. And if you're in the civilian sector, you always have the opportunity to look big and pivot to where you want to put your focus on. So that would be my sort of motherly, broad answer. To sharpen it a little, would you want him to be a man like that? These are high ethic people Mm -hmm. in your telling. They are highly focused, high-achieving people. They're very loyal. Mm-hmm. They, they seem to be steeped in history. Mm-hmm. They seem to be aware of the consequences of their actions. But you would not want them to be I mean, in I, that. I, don't, I haven't really thought about that. I think that kids have to make decisions for themselves about yeah. what they think is right. I mean, my own parents thought it would be a much safer bet for me to be a banker or a lawyer than a writer you know, mm-hmm. but I needed to do what I needed to do. So I do think people should make choices for themselves, but by all means, they should be educated about it, which is why he came to Vietnam, uh, you know, and shifted his, he's an artist actually. So, um, but, but, and he, okay, has two photo- he has two photographs in the book. He mm-hmm. took the photographs of that conversation between the two enemies, Billy Waugh and Colonel Bong, you know, discussing the war. Um, 
But I think once people get educated, they can begin to make the right decisions for themselves. And he decided after sitting there in communist Vietnam, you know, wow, I have a lot to be grateful for here in the United States of America. And it shifted his perspective. So there's value in learning what others do without judgment. Mm -hmm. We've talked about policy and international relations and warfare, but fundamentally, this is a book about people Mm -hmm. and the people doing this. Mm -hmm. And in their own way, they do appear to understand the moral consequences of what they do Mm -hmm. very well. Is that part of their success? Well, remember, there's a lot of failure, personal failure, because a lot of guys are dead, right? So I happen to be interviewing the ones who lived, but they tell stories about countless of their brethren who were killed in these operations. And And what they learn about life is it's arbitrary. Someone says it just happens. You got no way of knowing what's going to work and what isn't. And that is why the idea of glory and valor is, is more muted than just a word because there is a deep understanding of that. Not everybody makes it and how dangerous it is. Mm -hmm. And it's only getting more dangerous. I mean the, you know, and the CIA, by the way, doesn't report those, people that that die overseas they're not reported anymore they only know each other you know well we'll leave it on that mm-hmm. somber mm-hmm. if very human note um that's all the time we have for today our thanks to annie jacobson former contributing editor of the los angeles times magazine and author of surprise kill vanish the secret history of cia paramilitary armies operators and assassins we also thank our audiences here and on the radio television and the internet i'm quentin hardy And now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.